All right. Uh, Good morning. Please open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 7. That is Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. And I'll be preaching this morning um, from a prophecy concerning the birth of the Messiah, its fulfillment with the coming of Christ, and the implications of it for the future. Uh, Merry Christmas, everybody. Uh, This is an exciting week. Uh, But our text is Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. And this is a really well-known text. Is it not? Verse verse 6, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. Right? This is the quintessential Christmas passage in the eyes of many. Uh, and it's probably, uh, to, to my knowledge, or at least whenever I think about it, it's probably the most famous Old Testament Christmas passage. Uh, we see it quoted everywhere. Right? It's, it's printed on Christmas cards. I received one in the mail that had it this year. Uh, it's in our songs, or at least it's the, the good Christmas songs that aren't about nonsense. Uh, right? It's in the good songs. Um, it's, it's on our walls. Right? I have a decoration in my house that it's up on the wall for to us a child is born. Um, it's a very well-known portion of scripture. And with a well-known text often comes a well-worn path in our minds concerning the text. And sometimes we kind of miss what's being said because we already assume that we know what's being said because we've heard the passage so many times. So then I ask this, do we understand what's being said in Isaiah chapter 9? Do we understand the context of it and all that's said in it? Do we understand what comes before that famous verse, for to us a child is born? And do we understand how it's fulfilled? Now listen, sure, indeed we understand that it is about the birth of Christ. But do we see the implications of it from Isaiah's perspective? Do we see the implications of the birth of Christ, not just for our personal salvation, but also for the future of the world? And I ask this because, as I hope we'll see, the language used in this prophecy from Isaiah is far-reaching and indeed does have implications for the whole world in human history. So then, it's good to ask this question. What is it that we are celebrating at Christmas? And do we understand how good the good news of the birth of Jesus actually is? Do we understand what Isaiah was saying? Do we understand how much joy that it should bring us? And do we understand what hope it should put in our hearts? And not just hope for ourselves, but hope for the future of the world. Christmas is not about presents or lights or decorations. It's not even shocker to many, it's not even about generic kindness, right, and generic goodwill towards others. And it's not about the mere sentimentality of the idea of a baby being born into poverty in a stable and placed in a manger. Christmas is about God fulfilling his promise to send a savior who will give joy and hope to the world. It's about God sending a king whose kingdom will conquer the nations of this dark world and bring light to shine upon them. Christmas is about Jesus Christ, the Son of David, the Son of God, being born, being given, in order to establish the kingdom of God and bring about the promises of God for the world. And by God's grace, that's what I hope to show you from this text. Now with that said, if you would and are able, please stand with me now for the reading of the inspired, inerrant, and infallible word of God. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7, the prophet writes, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. 
In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you and praise you for giving us your word. In it you have revealed yourself, your plans, your promises, and your goodness. And so we ask now that by your spirit you would open our hearts to receive the revelation of your word. Teach us. Show us your glory. Show us Christ. Show us your plan for the world. Grant to us eyes to see, ears to hear, minds to understand, and hearts to joyfully believe what you have spoken from your holy mouth. Glorify yourself in our reception of your word. We ask for this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. Now let's begin with some context, right? Throughout chapter 8, if you've read the book of Isaiah, throughout chapter 8, you know that Isaiah has been prophesying judgment on Israel. Right? God was going to bring the Assyrians against Israel uh, in order to punish them for their unbelief and for their sin. And from where the Assyrians were located, uh, the first place that they would invade in Israel was going to be the region of Zebulun and Naphtali, also known as Galilee. And when the Assyrians come, Isaiah says, it's going to be awful. It's going to be bloody. It's going to be the very wrath of God upon Israel. In the last verse in chapter 8, where Isaiah is prophesying all of this wrath, in this last verse of chapter 8, it really ends in a dark way. Isaiah says, and they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. They'll be thrust into the darkness of the judgment of the Lord for their sins and their refusal to repent. They will be punished, and it will be an awful, horrible time for them. Judgment began on Zebulun and Naphtali, and would eventually reach to the whole nation of Israel. That's what Isaiah is prophesying throughout chapter 8. It's going to be awful. God's going to judge. Darkness is going to spread throughout the land. All of Israel is going to be judged for their sin. But that's not the last word. That's not the last word. Our text begins in chapter 9, verse 1, with the word but. And that is beautiful here. Isaiah says, but, or it could be translated, yet. He's contrasting the horrors of God's judgment and the darkness of God's wrath 
with something that's going to come later, something that's going to happen in the future. He says in verse 1, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, in the former time, he had brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Isaiah looks forward as a prophet being inspired by God. He looks into the future and sees brightness for the land that was once covered in night. And I love this, if this is confusing you at all. Isaiah speaks in the past tense here, but he's talking about something in the future. This is what commentators will call the prophetic past tense, and it's really beautiful. What Isaiah is saying here is that what God is going to do is so certain and so sure that Isaiah can speak about it as if it's already happened because it comes from the Lord. This has already happened. And Isaiah says that though in the former time God judged Israel, beginning with Zebulun and Naphtali, there's going to come a time after that judgment that he's going to bless Israel, and it's going to start in Zebulun and Naphtali. There will be brightness. There will be light. The land of Galilee of the Gentiles will be made glorious. Where God had judged, he promises to bless beyond measure. Verse 2 says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Just as darkness was a symbol of God's wrath on Israel in chapter 8, Isaiah says there's coming a time of light. That's a time of great blessing. And this light, again, is for the people who walked in darkness. It's for the people who were judged. This isn't just the region of Galilee. This is the whole nation because we know the whole nation of Israel was judged. So God is going to bless Israel. Or you could put it this way. God is going to bless his covenant people. A great light will break into the world and God will shower those in covenant with him. He will shower them with blessing. But what does this blessing consist of? What does this consist of? Isaiah says in verse 3, you have multiplied the nation. Now remember that under the old covenant, God's covenant people were a physical nation. So Isaiah is using that kind of language. God will multiply the nation. God's covenant people will be increased beyond imagination. No longer will there be just a small remnant of the faithful. No longer will there be dead bodies all around from enemy nations attacking them. Rather, the nation is going to expand and increase, and God will do it. Notice it says, you have multiplied the nation. He's talking about what God has done. God's going to do this. God's people will be a great multitude that no man can number. They will be a great and mighty nation. Again, the number of God's people is going to increase. And there will be joy for them. In verse 3, he says, you have increased its joy, the nation's joy. You've increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. There will be joy the likes of which God's people have never seen. Joy like Isaiah says, when the harvest comes, and God's people have been provided for, and they can eat their fill and have no worry. Joy like that after a great battle has been won and the people get to split the spoils of war and increase their wealth. And notice that he says the rejoicing is before you. Verse 3, it's, it's before you. It's before the Lord. It's a worshiping joy. They're praising the Lord. Why? Because he has done something for them that has resulted in this joy. And this is because he himself is going to bless and redeem his people. He is going to cause light to shine upon them. And this blessing, this joy, this multiplication of the nation will come because there will be peace and freedom for the people of God. 
Verse 4 reads, For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. Isaiah says that the oppressors will all be conquered by God. And then he makes an allusion to something that happened in the book of Judges in chapters 6 and 7. He says, Just as God conquered Israel's oppressors in the past, when God uh, had an army of 300 led by Gideon, destroy this massive army of Midian. Just as God did that in the past, God's going to do something like that in the future. God will take the rod of the nations, the thing that was used to oppress and harm his people, and he's going to shatter it. He's going to shatter it to pieces. God is going to conquer the enemies of his people and give them peace. And then this peace is highlighted in verse 5. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Now this verse honestly used to confuse me until a few months ago. I was like, what are you talking about? Like burning shoes and <laughs> burning clothes? I don't really understand what's going on. But what's happening here is Isaiah is describing a soldier's uniform. He's describing a soldier's uniform. He mentions the shoes that they wore that pounded the ground in battle. And he mentions the garment that is the clothing of the soldier that would have been soaked in blood from war. And he says they're both going to be thrown into the fire. They're going to be destroyed. And what he's saying here is if the uniform of the soldier is destroyed, then so is the warfare. He doesn't need a uniform anymore. The warfare is over. And so then the weapons of warfare are destroyed. Isaiah is saying that there is a time of peace coming for the people of God. A time when no one will ever again harm his people. A time when the oppressors of the people of God will be subdued. Redemption is coming. A time of salvation and peace is coming for God's people. That's a lot of blessing. And what is it that will bring about all of this blessing? For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. That word for, he's explaining. That's why the verse 6 starts with for. How's all this blessing going to happen? For to us, a child is born. A child will be born. A son will be given. This is how God is going to bring these blessings. Through this child, the light will shine where there was darkness. Because this child himself will be the light that blesses. And notice this child will be a king. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. The government, the right and power and authority to rule over everything will be given to this child. He will have undisputed rights over everything. Again, the government will be given to him. And this king will indeed have a kingdom. Look at verse 7. How will he rule? On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. What a thing to proclaim, right? Just consider this from, from Isaiah's perspective and from, from any Jew's perspective, right? Sometimes we're numb to this because we're Christians. He just said that the child is the promised son of David. He's going to sit on David's throne. He is the Davidic king. The child to be born then is the Messiah, the Messiah, he is the one that was promised to King David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. The son of David who's going to establish the kingdom of God and rule over it forever, for all eternity. 
This child then is the one whom the prophets spoke of and would refer to as the son of David or sometimes as David himself, referring to a descendant of David. This descendant who would save the people of God and usher in an age of righteousness and peace. This child is the one that Ezekiel spoke of who would be the great shepherd of God's flock. He's the one whom Daniel spoke of in Daniel chapter 7, the one who would be given dominion, government, and authority, and power, and an eternal kingdom that all the nations should serve him. This child is the Messiah whom Isaiah says in later on that he will come to suffer and die and, and be raised from the dead in order to save God's people from their sins. This child is the Savior, the King whom God has sent into the world to establish the kingdom and bless the world through it. That's what he says whenever he says he'll sit on the throne of his father David. This is the King of the kingdom that everyone's been waiting on. But how is it that this child will bring all of this blessing? How? What is so special about this king? Again, consider this from a Jew's perspective as they're hearing this. Israel has had awful kings. Unwise kings, powerless kings, godless kings, spineless kings. So what, there's going to be a king come. How is he going to bless us in this way? Well, to answer that, I, let's look at the names that Isaiah calls him. And they're glorious names that reveal what he is like and what he intends to do and his power to bless God's people. First thing, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Oh, there will be a wise king. He'll have wisdom, wisdom that leaves all of his hearers in awe and wonder. Dare I say, when he speaks, people will say, we've never heard anyone talk like this before. He will not take counsel from anyone. Counselors usually sit around the king and they give him counsel, but this king himself will be called Wonderful Counselor. He won't take advice from anyone because he doesn't need it. He has all wisdom in himself, so he takes counsel in and of himself. And this phrase here, wonderful counselor, is literally, and his name will be called wonder counselor. And that word wonder means supernatural. Isaiah is saying he will have supernatural wisdom. That is, he will have divine wisdom, the wisdom of Almighty God. And so with this wisdom, he will know exactly what to do and how to do it and how to bring the promised blessings uh, from God to his people and to the whole world. He'll have wisdom to do it. And what else? He shall be called mighty God. What a shock. He shall be called mighty God. This is no human title. This is no human title. Actually, honestly, this is blasphemy if the child to be born is merely a man. Right? This isn't how like some like kings in the ancient Near East would they would have like really trumped up titles, right? Like like the most powerful of all the powerful kings, whatever his name is. No, this is not this is not like that. This is a blasphemous thing if this child is merely a man. To call him mighty God, Isaiah is saying that this child will be nothing less than the almighty God come in the flesh. He'll be truly human. He'll be truly a child. For to us a child is born. He'll be truly human, but he will also be the mighty God. He'll be truly divine. This is the Emmanuel that Isaiah had promised in Isaiah 7. This is the one who is God with us. This is amazing. This baby is God in the flesh. 
No wonder he's going to be able to bring all these things to pass, for he is God. He is omnipotent. He is the mighty one. He is a warrior king. He's going to be able to do this because he is God himself. And as God, this king will be unstoppable because can anyone stop the hand of the Lord from doing what he wills? No. No one's going to stop this king from doing his work. His third title, and he shall be called Everlasting Father. Now, this does not mean that the child to be born is God the Father, right? Just throwing that out there. Heretical groups like to say so, especially the oneness Pentecostals and all that. They like to say, see, Jesus is the Father. That's not what this is saying. Rather, Isaiah is using common language, like that of a father, to refer to how the king will rule and what kind of attitude he's going to have towards his subjects. You see, using language of a father to refer to a ruler or some kind of benefactor was fairly common in that day. Let me give you two examples. Isaiah 22, 21, speaking of a man named Eliakim, we read, And I will clothe him with your robe and will bind your sash on him and will commit your authority to his hand, and he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the house of Judah. He'll be a father to them with all this authority and power that he has. He's going to reign well over them. Right? In Job 29.16, Job says, I was a father to the needy. He's saying, I took care of them. I had compassion on them, and I helped the poor. So what Isaiah is telling us here, that he'll be the everlasting father, he's saying that this child to be born, this king, is going to be a good king. He's going to be a good ruler, a kind ruler. He will be the compassionate protector and king of the people of God. And as the loving king, he will be zealous and eager to bring about the blessings that God has promised. Why? Because he loves his people and he wants to bless them. The Messiah will be passionate about accomplishing the work that he's been sent to do. And as the everlasting father, he will always and forever do nothing but good for his children. His children being his people who are under his rule, the citizens of his kingdom. Isaiah is saying a good, loving king is coming into the world who actually loves his subjects and is not corrupt. And then fourth, he shall be called Prince of Peace. Prince of Peace. Shiloh has come. The one that was spoken of in Genesis, Shiloh, the peace bringer, is going to come. He is the lover of peace. He is desirous to bring peace. He will accomplish peace. He has the power and authority to bestow peace on all who are under his rule and in his kingdom. And this word peace, many of you know this, is shalom. And it means not just a cessation of fighting, not just the end of strife, but all salvation, all blessing, all happiness. This king will be able to bring complete and utter peace to those under his rule because he is the prince of it. He's the owner of it, the commander of it in all the ways that it can exist. And so he can give it. The child to be born, this king, is amazing. He's absolutely amazing. There are none like him. There has never been a king like this. This king is almighty God and so is able to execute all his holy will. And as God, as the everlasting father... As the Davidic king over an eternal kingdom, his kingdom will never end, will it? Verse 7, 
of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Notice that Isaiah says that when the king ascends the throne of David, that is when he establishes it, is how the text puts it. When he establishes it, he will uphold it. And he will uphold it from this time, that is from the moment he takes the throne, and forevermore. His kingdom, once it is established, is not going anywhere. It will last. It will endure. No one's going to take the crown from him. No one's ever going to rob his people of their blessings. This king will be an undefeated, undisputed, never dethroned, always reigning, glorious, eternal king over his kingdom. And I love this so much. The text says, not only is the kingdom forever, but its increase will know no end. It will perpetually increase. Isaiah says, once the king takes the throne, once the kingdom is established, it will grow and it will never stop growing. So then, the increase of light, the increase of blessing, the increase of peace will never end, but is always growing so long as he reigns. And once he begins to reign, he reigns forever. But how will this happen? These promises are amazing. How do we know that they're going to be so? The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. You won't do this. God will do it. God made the promise and God stands behind it. So God will make sure that every single bit happens. Brothers and sisters, I'm sure that most of you know this already. But this child that Isaiah spoke of is our Lord Jesus. It's Jesus Christ. Isaiah predicted the coming of the son of David who would rule over the kingdom forever. And in Luke 1, verses 31 through 33, we read the angel Gabriel saying to the Virgin Mary, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Isaiah said that king is coming. And the angel says to Mary, you're going to have that king. Isaiah predicted the coming of the Messiah who would be called the mighty God. And in Luke chapter 2, verse 11, we read of the angels announcing to the shepherds, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ, the Lord. A Savior who is Christ. That's the Greek word for Messiah. A Savior who is the Messiah and who is the Lord. Kurios, one of the names of God in Greek. He is the Messiah and God. What Isaiah spoke of, the son of David who is the mighty God, would be born. And more than that, I don't know if you caught this or not, because we look over it. We, we've heard Luke 2.11 so many times. But did you catch how familiar that the words of the angels were? Isaiah said, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the angels tell the shepherds, For unto you is born. That's not on accident. The Bible is self-referential. 
For unto you is born. The child Isaiah spoke of was born that day. Jesus is the promised child, the promised king, who will bless his people and bless the world. And with his birth, the promises began to come to pass. Why do I say that? Well, remember, Isaiah links the birth of the child with the fulfillment of the promises of God. So when the child comes, the promises will begin to unfold. And we see this in the New Testament. When Jesus came in his first advent, his first coming, he began to establish the kingdom of God. He came to inaugurate his kingdom. Why do I say that? Mark chapter 1, verse 15. What's Jesus' first public proclamation? The time is fulfilled. And the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Well, what time? Is fulfilled. What's he talking about? The time when God was bringing to pass his promises. The time had come. And so Jesus was here. And the kingdom of God was at hand. I mean, spatially near. It's at hand. Why? Because the king was there. And where the king is, so is his kingdom. And so Jesus says, since the time of God bringing his promises to pass... And since, the king is, or since that is here, and since the king is here, now all men are to repent and believe the good news, the gospel. What gospel? The gospel that God's promises are coming to pass. That the prophecies of the Old Testament are happening. They're coming to pass. Further, in Matthew chapter 12, verse 28, Jesus himself says that the kingdom is here. You remember this text? It doesn't sound very Christmassy. The Pharisees are blaspheming the Holy Spirit. They're saying Jesus is casting out demons by the power of Satan and not by the power of God. And Jesus answers them and says, But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now, clearly then, unless you want to be guilty of blaspheming the Holy Spirit, and I would think you don't want to commit the unforgivable sin, clearly Jesus cast out demons by the power of the Holy Spirit. So then... The kingdom had come with his coming. The kingdom was established when he came. The kingdom, what one? The one Isaiah was talking about. The one Isaiah spoke of. The eternal kingdom. The kingdom through which the king would bless all men. But how are these promises coming to pass? How are they coming to pass? First, I, I want to consider them spiritually. How these promises are coming to pass. First, the light has indeed shown on those individuals who lived in darkness, has it not? Those who lived in darkness, what is darkness? It's the wrath of God. Those who lived under the displeasure of God, under his wrath, who were without blessing, on mankind, the light of Christ has begun to shine. The light of salvation has dawned on us. Upon sinful humanity who were imprisoned and in bondage to sin, Satan, and death, and on whom the wrath of God abided, the light has dawned. Blessing has come. Why do you think John in the first chapter of his gospel says, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world? The light is Christ who gives blessing to mankind. And Christ first began to shine in Galilee of the Gentiles, didn't he? 
In Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 17, Matthew mentions how Jesus lived in Galilee and how he ministered there. And then Matthew quotes directly from Isaiah chapter 9 and says the scripture was fulfilled that declared that the light would dawn in Galilee of the Gentiles and that the people would see a great light. Christ came to give light to the Jewish people so that they might be brought into the kingdom of God. And so he preached the gospel there. But do you remember what Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 12? I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Christ Jesus came to give light to all who would believe, both Jew and Gentile. He came into the world to shine and give blessing, not to the Jews only, But to the whole world, the light has indeed dawned and those who receive him are blessed in him. The second thing, or second way this has begun to be fulfilled. The nation has begun to be multiplied, has it not? In our Lord's coming, he came to live, die in place of sinners, and be raised from the dead. Why did he do that? To bring sinners into his kingdom. To wash us clean by taking our sins upon himself and satisfying the wrath of God for us. To make us fit citizens of his kingdom by giving us his righteousness. By his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus has purchased citizenship in his kingdom for those who believe on him. And in doing so, he has begun to multiply the nation. And maybe you're sitting here thinking, what do you mean, dude? (laughs) We're not Jews. We're not Jews. So that we are not, this is not the nation that Isaiah spoke of. Dear friend, hear me. We are spiritually Jews if your faith is in Christ. And, and as such, we are part of the nation. We are the people of God through faith in Christ. In the book of Galatians, the apostle Paul tells us that it is those who have faith in Christ who are the descendants of Abraham. And the descendants of Abraham make up what? Israel. We are Israelites by faith. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 16, Paul refers to believers as the Israel of God, the true Israel, God's Israel. Paul also tells us in Romans chapter 9 that not all who are born in the physical lineage of Israel are actually Israelites, but those whom God has chosen to save, those who trust in Christ, that's a true Jew. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, Paul tells his Gentile readers that we... Gentiles were once alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. What does that mean? You weren't a part of the commonwealth of Israel, but now you are. Now you are, spiritually speaking. Even more, the apostle Peter says in 1 Peter 2 verses 9 and 10, he says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. And brothers and sisters, the language Peter is using here is all over Deuteronomy and all over Exodus. It's the language that God uses to refer to Israel in the Old Testament. And he says, this is actually true of us in the church who have faith in Christ. All that is to say, we are Israel. We are indeed members of the nation. 
And that's because the physical nation of Israel was just a foreshadowing of God's true people who are his people by faith in Christ. Now hear me, I want to be clear. I would bet that Isaiah did not realize that this would be the fulfillment of his prophecy. I would guarantee you Isaiah did not see this coming. But the New Testament is clear. Christ has multiplied the nation. And he has done so by bringing the Gentiles into the nation. So the nation, the people of God, has been growing and increasing ever since Christ came, has it not? And in 2,000 years of church history, it's already surpassed anything physical Israel had ever seen with regard to numbers. He has increased the nation. And it will continue to grow as sinners one at a time are brought into the kingdom of God by faith in Christ. He has increased the nation. A third thing, Christ has fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah by bringing joy to God's people. Every single one of us who believe in Christ have deep abiding joy, do we not? His kingdom rejoices like never before. Why? Because he's purchased us by his blood. Because we've been saved. The penalty for our sin has been paid for by the king. We have been washed clean by the king. We have been granted citizenship. Us who, who lived in darkness under the wrath of God have been given citizenship to an eternal kingdom that cannot be shaken. We have joy now because we know God. We have joy that no one can take from us because our citizenship in the kingdom cannot be taken away. Again, we are part of a kingdom that cannot be shaken and eternal life is ours. We have joy. We have joy in the Holy Spirit. We have comfort in all of our trials. We have the smiling face of God shining upon us. The ironic blessing belongs to us in Christ. Truly, the joy of the nation has been increased. Why? Because we've been fed. We rejoice like those to whom the harvest has come. Because we've been fed with righteousness. And we rejoice as those who split the spoils after a battle. Why? Because the battle has been won on our behalf by the mighty God. Christ has done it. And in a sense, the whole world rejoices. And that's because sinners from all over the world are being brought into this joyous nation. There is more joy since Christ has come. There has been more joy in the world since the child has been born than could have ever been expected when Isaiah prophesied. Christ is our joy. Fourth, Christ has brought peace for us. He has freed us from the yoke of our bondage to sin and Satan. He has freed us from slavery to death. Hear me. He has taken the rod of our oppressor. He has taken the power of the devil and he has shattered it to pieces by the blood of his cross. As John says in 1 John chapter 3, Jesus came into the world to destroy the works of the devil. Our spiritual oppressors have been defeated in the death and resurrection of Christ and their uniforms have been cast into the fire because there is no more war for Christ has won the war for us. And we now have peace. We have peace. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ and nobody can take it from us because it's been given to us as a gift from the almighty King Christ has come, and with his coming, he established his kingdom. And with his kingdom, he began to bring to pass the promises of Isaiah chapter 9. But I have to ask, are these blessings only for a few? And this is where I'm going to lose some of you, but I hope not. 
Are these blessings only to be spiritual blessings? I don't think the language of Isaiah or the implications of his prophecy will permit such a view. Isaiah said of the increase, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Now listen, a lot of people look at that and a lot of the commentaries that I read, it was making me laugh and get frustrated. They wanted to, they wanted to focus on this means that Christ's kingdom is eternal and it will never end. And amen, that is true. But it's not just that. The text specifically says that the kingdom will grow exponentially in history once he ascends the throne of his father David. It will increase and it will never stop increasing. And what does Peter tell us in Acts chapter 2? Write this down if you've never studied this. Acts 2 verses 29 through 36. Peter tells us that Christ's enthronement on the throne of David happened in his resurrection and ascension. That's when it happened. And so his kingdom was established in the first century. And Isaiah says it will never stop growing until the end of the world. It will never stop growing. And listen, this kingdom grows how? By the preaching of the gospel. As sinners are converted by God's sovereign grace, the kingdom expands. As God blesses the efforts of his church to proclaim Christ, the kingdom will grow and increase more and more. The gospel will be successful in the world. It will convert the nations. This is the implication of what Isaiah said in his, in his prophecy. And this shouldn't shock us. It's the same thing Daniel said. In Daniel chapter 2, Daniel talked about a stone that was cut with no human hands. That means it's God's work. It's God's stone. And he says this stone is a kingdom. And this stone smashed down a statue that represented the pagan kingdoms of the world. And then that stone, this little stone, grows into a mountain, a mighty mountain that fills the whole earth. This stone is the kingdom of God. And this is also what Jesus himself said in the parable of the mustard seed. What's he say? The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, the smallest of all seeds when planted. But once it grows, it becomes the largest plant in the garden. Dare I say it dominates the garden. And the birds of the air rest in its branches. In the Old Testament, in the book of Ezekiel, the birds of the air symbolize the nations. So when the nations, the birds of the air, come into the tree, this is the world coming into the kingdom. Jesus himself says this is going to happen. So then, in light of Isaiah 9 and all the other prophecies, I think we're forced to conclude that Christ's kingdom will increase until it dominates the world. Sinners will continue to flood into his kingdom one at a time by the preaching of the gospel until he comes again. Please hear me. If his kingdom keeps increasing, then the kingdoms of the world must decrease. The light shines and the darkness will not overcome it. The kingdom of Christ will continue to spread until the world belongs to him in a visible way. The nation will increase and increase. And as the nation increases, so will peace. And so will joy of the increase of his government and of peace. The increase of peace. Hear me. There will one day be no oppression for the people of God. This world will be subdued in history. The kingdom of the world will become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. 
and he shall reign forever and ever. And as the world is subdued by the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace, as the world is subdued by the king, the nations will begin to submit to his ways and to his law. Read Isaiah chapter 11, another prophecy of the Messiah. And it says, and the nations are going to come to him that he might render judgments for them. What does that mean? It means there's still some kind of conflicts going on that need judgments rendered. That's in human history. That's not at the end. The nations come to him and say, Jesus, how should we do this? They're going to submit to his word and his law. Brothers and sisters, there is coming a future age on earth when God's people will no longer be persecuted by the world, but rather the world will be under the dominion of Christ. And as Isaiah said in chapter 11, verse 9, they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. Why won't they hurt God's people anymore? For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. An era of peace and prosperity for God's people in history is coming. The blessings Christ began to bestow at his first coming will continue to grow and increase until he comes again. Because the increase of his government and of peace will know no end. Now hear me, I want to be clear, just a brief word. This doesn't mean that the world will ever be a pure utopia. There will always be sin and death until Christ returns bodily. But this does mean that we have hope for the future of this world in history. Consider it with me, brothers and sisters. The birth of Christ gives hope for the future of the world. And we used to understand this as Christians. Let me read you one of the most famous Christmas hymns of all time. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. Verse 3, no more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. That's what he's come to do. That's what he's going to do. Now, does this seem too good to be true? Of course. Most of you guys think that I'm probably on drugs, that I'm taking such an optimistic view of, of history, right? David, did you not live through 2020 and 2021? I did, and I started believing this in 2020 because we don't read the Bible in one hand and a newspaper in the other. If the book prophesies that it's going to happen. But yes, this does seem too good to be true. And the Lord knows that, and that's why... The end of the prophecy in Isaiah says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. It sounds too good to be true, but the zeal of Yahweh will do this. The zeal of God Almighty will do this. God is passionate to make this happen. He himself will accomplish it. Listen, it's not going to be through our might. It's not going to be through politics. It's not going to be through any human wisdom. It will be the work of Almighty God through the gospel of His kingdom. It will be God who does this. And since God stands behind this promise, it's sure to happen. No matter how things look now, the prophecy is certain and sure. The gospel will prevail upon the world. What did Jesus say? The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. And might I remind you, gates are a defensive structure. Jesus says that his kingdom is going to knock down the city gates and ransack the kingdom of Satan in a holy war. The nation, rather the world, will not withstand the assault of the gospel. 
It can't. Jesus says it can't. The nations are going to come in willingly and gladly. Psalm 110 verse 3 says, Your people offer themselves freely in the day of your power. The day of his power began when the Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand. And he sits there, how long? Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And once his enemies have been conquered, then he will come again. Christ shall have dominion. He reigns now and his reign will spread. Brothers and sisters, what does this have to do with Christmas? Christ's first coming brought joy to the world. It brought peace on earth. And we're living in the age of fulfillment. The light is spreading. The nation is multiplying. Joy and peace are increasing. Why? Because the king has come. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. So what are we celebrating at Christmas? We're celebrating that Isaiah's prophecy is being fulfilled. And it's being fulfilled because the child has come. The kingdom has been established. The king has brought sinners in by his blood and his kingdom will increase until he comes again. Rejoice. The king has come and peace he brings. The king has come and long live the king. Amen. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you for your word that gives us so much comfort. Thank you for, for blessing us with this prophecy that tells us about the future history of the world. We thank you for sending our King, our Lord Jesus, to live, die, and be raised to bring sinners into his kingdom. And we thank you, Lord, that we are citizens. By faith in Christ, we are citizens of a kingdom that will never be shaken. We are citizens of a kingdom that will last. Citizens of a kingdom that you are zealous for. Citizens of a kingdom over which Christ is king. Help us to trust in him and rejoice in him always. We pray in his name. Amen.